0: There is nothing so wonderful in the world as telling stories. Tous les matins, on essaye de traverser le miroir et de regarder le monde différemment. Et c'est vrai, I am a woman. Une fois que ce saut est fait, tout devient possible.
1: Hello, I'm Charlotte Casiraghi. Welcome to the podcast of les rendez-vous littéraires rue Cambon. A place where we meet to talk about writing, to talk about books. Let's meet women writers who have just taken their first step, the most decisive, the most difficult in the world of literature. How did their vocation call to them? What are their writing rituals? Who reads them and what do they read? And today, Erika Wagner will be hosting Ingrid Perso.
0: I'm Erica Wagner, and it's my pleasure to introduce Ingrid Persaud and welcome her to Chanel's podcast of Les Rendezvous Littéraires, Rue Cambon. Ingrid's first novel, Love After Love, won the Costa First Novel Award in 2020, but she was winning prizes long before that. She won the Commonwealth Short Story Prize in 2017 and the BBC National Short Story Award in 2018. Born in Trinidad, she read law at London School of Economics before later studying fine art at Central St. Martin's in London. Her writing has appeared in many venues Granta, Prospect, The Guardian, National Geographic, and Five Dials, to name a few. I can't wait to talk to her today. Welcome, Ingrid. It's marvelous to be here with you. Thank you for having me, Erica. In this first section of our podcast, we're going to talk about your vocation as a writer. And I want to know about your relationship with writing. What made you a writer? I think it was a process of
2: elimination, trying to find an outlet for my creativity that somehow connected my hands and my heart. And uh, I tried fine art. And that did some of it. It introduced the concept of play, but it wasn't quite there. And um, I really sort of fell into writing because we'd moved to Barbados. and um and I sort of lost my my art tribe. I'd been in London, so the kind of London art scene, wearing black, trying to be cool, hanging out at galleries. And then I got to Barbados, where. Most artists were painters and they were doing sort of large, colourful narrative paintings and I can't paint to save my life. And so um, I kept sort of trying to do something creative and and, um, and failing miserably, like I'd ask at the petrol station if they wanted an artist in residence. And they said, you know, lady, just pay for your gas and go, please. And... Uh, so, so that wasn't terribly successful. And so I started writing a blog and I, I gave myself um, the task of writing 900 words to be published by 10 a.m. on a Friday. And that was my notes from a small rock.
0: And I did that for three years. I think that's really my apprenticeship. And that gave you, we'll talk a little bit more about your practice later on, but it sounds like that helped develop your discipline.
2: Yeah, I don't have a problem with discipline, really, because the the Presbyterians got me early, so I went to a, a Presbyterian um, primary school, a Presbyterian secondary school, and and we really didn't do fun, we um, we did
0: discipline. But your writing, I should say to our listening audience, is tremendous fun. There's a marvelous sense of play and enjoyment uh, in all of your writing and certainly in Love After Love. I want to talk about your early influences. I've heard you mention a book called The Year in San Fernando by Michael Anthony, Also V.S. Naipaul's A House for Mr. Biswas. Both of these books, I think, made strong impressions on you. So I'd like to hear a little bit about why. And I also wonder about Derek Walcott, because your wonderful debut novel shares a title with one of his poems, which contains the line, you will love again the stranger who was yourself. I think I should preface what I, I, I say, Erica, by um,
2: something more personal, which is that I, I'm the child of sort of lower middle-class parents who were, you know, are descendants of indentured labourers. And education means everything. And there are three options. You know, you can be a lawyer, you can be a doctor, or you can be a failure. And so the idea of being a writer just wasn't part of the deal. And so when I tell you about early influences, I'm telling you about just... My love of reading, which I got from my mother, she absolutely let me read anything I wanted. So it wasn't that I was honing a craft from a long time ago, but what I did enjoy reading more than anything else were voices that spoke to my local experience. So, you know, on the one hand, I I was a kid growing up with Enid Blyton and and reading, you know, about... um, girls playing hockey and living at boarding school and having midnight feasts. And then I read A Year in San Fernando, and I was living in San Fernando, and I could recognize the street names. Then I I was about 13 when I read A House for Mr. Biswas, and I could see echoes of my own family, or at least a society around me. And when I read Derek Walcott, I suddenly realized that the beauty that I thought was the privilege of um, something foreign and unattainable was actually just around me. It was the beach and the sand and the people and the chaos and the mixture that that too could be beautiful. And so that's what Derek Walcott gave me.
0: The idea of creating beauty didn't exist in some other world but could be very close to you, if I understand you correctly. Yes, because the beauty was
2: elsewhere before. The beauty was in reading Hardy or reading, you know, Lawrence or Virginia Woolf. It it wasn't in something that I could see and feel. It wasn't in what felt like... We have a word called commas. And commas means that things are just not well arranged. It's disarrayed, taken to a certain degree. And that's what my life felt like. And that's what my surroundings felt like with the heat and the dust and nothing was terribly well laid out in the way that beautiful English gardens might be. It was a bit wild. And, um, And so to find that that was... Both acceptable and could be a source of inspiration and beauty and happiness was was a real eye opener.
0: You talked about your parents and this idea that you could be a doctor, a lawyer, or a failure. You did study the law,
2: yes, because I'm a good girl, and uh, and I wasn't any good at sciences, so I um, you know, I just looked at law. I was like there's nothing else I can do. So I I rock up at um, London School of Economics and and I look around, you know, and within a month or two, I realise these are not my people and I'm never going to be one of them. But what I did also discover is that I loved university. And if you stay long enough and You sort of give them enough fees. They give you bits of paper. And then if you really won't leave, then they give you a job. And so I could just kind of continue just pretending that I was in the law. But actually, I was just having a lot of fun hanging out at university.
0: And and that's where I want to end up again. (laughs) But there must have come a point where, and... In your familial context, too, where you accepted your vocation, that you weren't a failure and you were going to make your life in art, in writing. What did that mean to fully step into that? Oh, you make it sound like it was a
2: terribly Brave and courageous decision. No, I hid it. I didn't tell my parents till ages, you know. And um, I took six months off from my academic job as a law professor. And um, I thought that it didn't matter what you did for six months of your life. And I saw um, advert for art foundation course at the Slade. So I rocked up there and I said, uh, yeah, I'd like to do this course. And they said, where's your portfolio? And I said, well, I don't have one, but I'm, I'm terribly enthusiastic. And uh, they hemmed and hoared and they said, well, I guess you haven't learned any bad ways. So we'll take you. And at the end of that, uh, you know, I had it was awful. It was a baptism by fire. But by the end, I, I found myself saying I want to do a degree in fine art. And so I had to go off and get an HNC in art because that's like the equivalent of an A-level for grown-ups. And um, so, you know, off I went from the the top of the um, food chain to um, being denied access to the library because they said I had to take a course first on how to use the library and the Dewey Decimal System for labelling books so that I'd know where to find them. So that told me where I was at. <laughs> and then I, uh, I I, don't know what my parents told people when I was doing an art degree. I think they probably said she was having a vacation or something. I, 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 They suddenly didn't own up to it. And then I made matters worse by, you know, that whole thing. I was back at university. I was having a good time. And, and so I just wanted to stay so... I went to St Martin's to do a master's and and I wouldn't leave, so so they gave me a bit of a part time job there too. Y- you see the pattern
0: <laughs> I do see the pattern I do see the pattern
2: but it was I think you you know you you talked about stepping into one's vacation, so with writing, I think it was easier. Because the first thing I write and the first kind of experience of of me as a writer, I win a prize. And so if you take a prize home at any age, it's really good.
0: And that was actually going to be my next question, because your wonderful story, The Sweet Sop, won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize and the BBC National Short Story Award So what did winning those prizes mean, not just in your family, but I also think for you, for your confidence and desire to continue to step forward?
2: Winning the Commonwealth Short Story Prize was really significant because people were calling me a writer. They were saying, oh, she's a writer of short stories, even though I had just the one. So I had to sort of, you know, pretend that there's just one of many, you know, that I'm going to be churning out. So other people were calling me a writer and the prize also endorsed a particular type of writing which is writing in Trinidadian English. And that felt really significant that I could write in the voice that I was kind of stepping into and that it would be okay that other people would understand it. So that was really significant. And then winning the BBC National Short Story Award was even more significant because the BBC put a lot of uh, PR behind it. So it's a big prize in the world and it's 15 grand as well. So it's a significant um, prize. But the first thing I was asked is, you know, who's my agent? And of course, I didn't have an agent, so I did the whole, I'm just a poor thing from an island and I've just got the one short story for me. And um, so I had all these agents lining up and um, and they were like, oh, we'll take you, we'll take you. And... Um, I said, that'd be lovely. Could you just slot yourself into this spreadsheet here? I've got 10 days and I'm going to interview all of you. So I interviewed everyone and I told them I wouldn't choose until the end. It was the most amazing experience from having, you know, I think like the week before I'd won the BBC Short Story Award, one agent had set up a meeting with me and cancelled me on the day. And her email said... I have to cancel because I've got to meet someone important. <laughs> she also congratulated me afterwards, but I didn't reply.
0: Um, That'll teach you.
2: Yeah. So I interviewed all of these agents and uh, and I ended up with the magnificent Zoe Waldi at RCW. And... Um, yeah, the rest is is history with that.
0: Well, I'm going to ask you one more question about that history because I want to know a little bit about the publication of Love After Love when you found out that your novel was going to be published, what that felt like, because that's another step forward after winning these prizes to come out into the world with a novel. I gave Zoe 20,000
2: words of Love After Love Um And she said, uh, this is fantastic. I think that you've really got something here. And when can I have the rest? And uh, I gave it the rest to her three months later. I wrote like like a banshee. And um, I think it was her enthusiasm of the first 20,000 words that helped me and made me sure this was something that would fly. And... um, I soon discovered, you know, that she she carries a lot of weight in the industry. And um, she said, you know, I've got all of these uh, publishers who are interested and uh, we need to go and see them. And I thought that we need to go to see them and pitch to them. And so can you imagine how weird it was to show up at the first pitch where I had researched every person in that room only to find that they were pitching to me. And um, one of them had baked a sweetbread... And there was this homemade sweetbread. And she said, I've used the recipe from your novel. And then I got a bottle of rum with um, my name on the label, Persaud Rum. And I was like, oh, this is nice. So we went around to lots of publishers. And um, Faber, who I ended up with, they merely served um, pastries from the local deli. And I, I said to them, you know, mm, your competitors did home baked goods. And where's my rum? And And where's my rum? and and I could see Louisa going. Oh, man, if only we'd gone to that bakery in Brixton, <laughs> you know, we'd have it in the bag. but um, so all that to say that it wasn't like a huge surprise, but it was very exciting. You know, it went to a seven week auction and and I thought, you know, I'm going to make enough money to retire forever. Well, well, that didn't quite happen. But, you know, I got more money than I've ever got for anything because I hadn't written anything before. <laughs> so I was, uh, I was very pleased. I've ended up at a, a publishing house that I have great support and I love being there.
0: That's wonderful. Well, now I think we'd like to hear a little bit of Love After Love, if you'll read for us.
2: Sure. So I'm going to read um, Love After Love um, is uh, a book about uh, homemade families, families that come together and these uh, three people, Betty, her son, Solo and their lodger, Mr. chetan come together to form an unconventional family um, broken apart by um, a little too much Rama and some secrets being um, spilled. And the rest of the book is really how they perhaps come back together or not and how they find themselves and it's really about themselves and it's narrated in their three voices. So there's Betty, Solo, and Mr. Chayton. And I'm going to read to you from the first chapter, which is in Betty's voice, and she's interacting with her husband Sunil. In Tutu's, I dished out the stew chicken, vegetable rice, and green salad. Sunil used the fork like it was a shovel. When he's like this, Anything can become an argument, and any argument can become a fight. Like salt cheap. But I hardly put any salt in the food. He rocked back in his chair. If looks could kill. You telling me you cooked this chicken and didn't put one set of salt in the pot? Silence. So what I tastin'? Something must be wrong with my mouth. How I tastin' salt soup? You know my pressure high and you giving me salt. Like you want to kill me, eh? I was careless. I'd left the rolling pin on the drain board, easy reach of Sunil's chair. That rolling pin might have hit the wall or the bed or the chair, but it found me. Doctor said the ulna and the radius snapped in two. My arm was in a cast, when we buried Sunil a week later. At the funeral, I told people it was no big deal. I must stop being so careless with ladders. But I talk half and left half. People used to look at me and Sunil and say, Betty Gill, you're real lucky. In my head, I wanted to ask if they make a joke. Lucky? That man only gave love you could feel. He cough your down? Honeymoon. He give you a black eye, true love in your tail. He break your hand, a love letter. He put you in hospital for a week, love will stay the course. He take a knife and stab your leg, until death to us part. <laughs>
0: In the next section of our conversation, I want to ask you a little bit about your writing process. I want to know a little bit about your habits and rituals. Are you an early in the morning person, late at night? Do you have any talismans that you keep on your desk? How does the process work for you?
2: You know, every writer gets asked this, and I think it's because we're looking for some special alchemy that exists um, some magic that brings it all together and there's no magic you have to get rid of all distractions and you um, have to sit at your desk and so I've got rid of quite a lot of distractions my twin boys are um, old enough to have flown the nest a, a bit at uni And the other half got rid of me. So that freed me up with some time as well. So I'm alone and I've got a dog called Bob Marley. And if I have any talisman or critic, it's Bob Marley because I do read what I write out loud to him. And if he doesn't yawn
0: or go to another room, I feel, well, you know, there's something there. And that's an unusual first reader I'm going to say in my experience of talking to writers. Yeah he's he's a tough one and
2: I used to be an early morning person now I'm just a all-the-time person I'm writing with a kind of feverish energy and I'm writing all the time so I'll write till three in the morning I'll get up at seven I'll have a cup of tea have some cereal and then I'll start writing again and I just kind of sleep as much as i need to and eat when i need to and have this incredibly privileged space of not worrying about anyone else and also because you know i'm an old biddy and, and and so i've got to, i've got to write i've got to just like get all the books out of me you know i didn't start young enough to Allow myself 20 years to write the second book.
0: So you've got some catching up to do. I do indeed. Do you feel? I want to ask you about your use of language. The Trinidadian English you write in is so rich and distinctive. What do you think about the way in which what is called Standard English has been privileged in literature? It's been privileged in literature and it's astounding that it continues to be privileged
2: when it is the English of such a small minority. And therefore, the, to me, that is what's astounding, rather than the fact that I'm choosing to write in the English of millions of people who live in the Caribbean. So it's odd that we, we've we adhered to that standard. And I I just didn't think it was authentic to what I'm doing because my setting is Trundad my characters are Trundallian why wouldn't they speak as they normally would and then why would i write the prose in a different register from the dialogue that was so alien i didn't want that sort of setup that therefore pitted one english against another and i thought that once you write with clarity and integrity People will understand. So I don't translate. I don't explain. um, And I do it with, I hope, enough enthusiasm that uh, people are won over.
0: And what does it mean for you in this novel to write in the first person, to let the characters tell their own stories? Because these characters were all journeying to themselves and
2: I was telling very personal stories, it seemed natural to do it in the first person and to have each narrator allowed a, a moment. It was easier to do it in some voices than others. Ironically, the men were easier voices. And I know that some women writers find that odds because they can inhabit female voices better. But I think that my ability to um, inhabit male voices and male persona, at least more easily, is really a natural outcome of the fact that women are always attempting to go into spaces that we are barred from. And so we're always imagining and placing ourselves in these spaces that we can't occupy. So when I had to go to Betty's voice, someone much closer to myself that was really difficult.
0: How do you edit your work? Do you redraft as you go along? Do you wait till you have something complete? What's that process like for you?
2: I edit as I go along. So um, a paragraph could take a day. Um, I try not to let it take a day, but it can do. My first draft tends to be quite a advanced draft. Advanced in the sense that I've got rid of the obvious silly things that creep in like someone enters a room in chapter five but leaves from a different room the next chapter you see them Uh, so I get rid of all those little inconsistencies I try to deal with the voice I try to really struggle and get the voice right and I try to get the plot right and so subsequent iterations are, are about honing in getting the nuances in place
0: do you have any trusted early readers aside of course from bob marley and perhaps zoe too? your wonderful agent
2: so zoe is someone you know i i treasure every um criticism she gives she's so encouraging but apart from Bob Marley and Zoe, I have a secret weapon in Luke Nema, who is the deputy editor of Granta magazine. And Luke, I met because he published uh, The Sweet Soap in Granta in 2017 or whenever it was, and um, uh, was really so encouraging. And he's remained, I would say he's my first reader and he is my most trusted uh, reader.
0: But I think it's interesting what you say about the importance of that early reader because writing is often seen as a completely solitary process and, of course, so much of it is solitary. But there does come this point where the feedback of someone who really understands you feels like a collaboration. I do, and I don't like the idea of being
2: celebrated Yes, I wrote it. And yes, I spent, you know, many, many months alone with my thoughts. But a book is such a long collaboration. It starts with Bob Marley and Luke and my mum and my trusted friends and Zoe. And then when everyone I trust around me feels it's OK. Then it goes into Faber and and Louisa, my wonderful editor there. And Nicole Counts at Random House in the US. She puts her oar in. And then there are the copy editors and, and so many other people that it really is um, a team effort that comes at the end. And I think people forget that and they prefer the myth of the lone genius, you know, writing. That's definitely not me.
0: In the final section of our podcast, I'd like to ask you about the reception of this wonderful novel. The New York Times called Love After Love a stellar debut. Gabriel Bump, the author of Everywhere You Don't Belong, wrote that it was a big-hearted prose narrative about an unconventional family, fear, hatred, violence, chasing love, losing it and finding it again just when we need it most. What kind of reactions did you get to the novel? And I wonder maybe what reactions meant the most to you. Gosh,
2: so this is um, spilling, you know, my heart a little bit. But your review, Erica, in The Economist was the one that I think ultimately meant the most because it was the very first one and I knew it was coming. And um, Zoe and I were literally at the laptop refreshing the page constantly to see if it would be panned or what was said. And that was the most meaningful and the one that I remember most, and the one that I I cut out and you know sent around to everyone. After that, I um I was okay. I thought, ah, the Economist likes it. I'll be all right.
0: Maybe this is going to be all right. And
2: maybe it's going to be all right. And so the others started coming in, and I was just really lucky. I was just you know, there's always an element of luck that somehow the book touched people. Maybe at the right time when they needed it. You know, there's there's so many things that uh, go into um, a good reception, and chance is is part of it.
0: I wonder, did you hear from readers? Did you get any response from the public? Or when you've done readings, have people come up to you and told you their stories? I wonder how that's been. I do a lot of um,
2: reader events because I think um, the book is nothing without its reader. You know, it it isn't completed without a reader. The book goes and uh, hopefully a reader touches it and it touches the reader. And, and really, it is that process that makes the book. And so I give a lot of time to book clubs. Um, I'm always inviting myself to book clubs. I I read on Twitter, you know, we're reading Ingrid Persaud's, you know, Love After Love. And I jump on and say, can I come? Can I come? And, uh, you know, with Zoom, I I can do. In fact, one book club in Philadelphia wrote to Faber and said, there's someone impersonating Ingrid Persaud who wants to come to our book club. (laughs) So that was kind of funny. So I've had a lot of positive feedback. I've had some heart-wrenching letters, not many, but but a few of people who've suffered, um, women who've suffered from domestic violence. I've heard from parents whose children have self-harmed and they found the bits on, on self-harm difficult to read. So I get a lot of positive feedback. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't a lot of negative feedback out there, but I don't go seeking it. So I don't read like Amazon reviews or Goodreads or anything like that. I just assume that um, if it's really nasty and but it's something I can learn from, somebody's going to bring it to
0: my attention. Otherwise,
2: nah, not bothered.
0: I think you're working on something quite different now, historical fiction, I believe, I wonder if that gives you perhaps a different perspective on love after love. You know, it's published a little while ago now, and you wrote it before that. When you think back to this, your first novel now, what do you think? I think how naive, how
2: brave (laughs) to have just gone in not knowing anything about the industry or because it is a commercial process. And I had no idea about anything. I just thought, you know, you write your best and you hope for the best. Now I know far more about it, at least. It's it's not that I'm jaded and it's not that I'm not trying to write the things that I want to write. I think what drives me now is that because I don't think I have lots of time, I want to experiment as much as possible with each bit of writing that I do. And mm-hmm. so I was writing a novel uh, that felt, you know, I was on familiar ground. And then I was asked to do a nonfiction piece. And uh, I did it on Boise Singh, who is um notorious Trinidadian gangster, serial killer he was the godfather, sort of taken up a notch or two. And um, I sort of fell in love with the material. And I ditched the novel I was writing and um, have had to learn how to handle historical material. And um, I've had to engage in, in a sort of different set of research and sensitivities. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it.
0: I'd like to ask you about the reception of your work in the broader sense as well, because you've spoken about the importance of greater equality in the publishing industry. Tell me what you mean by that and how you think it can be achieved. Great equality is, it, it, it's in two strands. The
2: first is about the voices that are allowed to be uh, heard. And I have to say that Faber were amazing. There was never any pushback. In fact, there was no pushback from any of the houses that bid for the book. So they understood that good writing, a different voice, they can make something of this. And since then, we've had so many new voices come through. uh, And... um, So we're definitely seeing a moment where publishing houses are taking, I wouldn't say they're taking greater risk because they are publishing excellent work that stands up and is award-winning. But they are open, at least, to lots of new voices coming through. So long may that continue. But there's a second strand to the industry, which is slightly overlooked. If you write a book about the Caribbean, you might find yourself tucked away on a shelf at the back of the bookstore under multicultural literature or travel literature or something that has nothing to do with your work. And so it is a process of educating the whole industry that actually a book like Love After Love is literary fiction. It doesn't belong on the shelf with romance and it doesn't belong in the back with multicultural voices. And it definitely isn't a travelogue or a cookbook. But, you know, that takes time and um, persistence, So I have gone into bookstores where I have removed my book from the inappropriate shelf, taken it up to the counter and said that uh, I'd love to sign the copies for you because if you sign it, they can't return it. So there's some royalties. Then I suggest where they might shelf it. And of course, they're too embarrassed to do anything
0: differently. Or indeed, put it on one of those nice tables at the front.
2: Oh, yeah. I always
0: put it on the nice table just to show them what it could look like. Exactly. Exactly. Now, we're going to close our talk. It's been so marvellous speaking to you. We have some a few quick fire questions for you, which we ask all of our guests. And the first one is, what is the most surprising thing you've learned from being a writer? This one stumps me. And, you know, it's joy.
2: I didn't expect to be so completely happy. And I'm not talking about the fact that I don't have to come out of my pyjamas most days. It's that I am truly happy that it's a body, mind, spirit kind of coming together happiness.
0: And while we're on the subject of surprise what would people be surprised to learn about you other than that you read to your dog?
2: I ran the New York Marathon. Yeah, babe. I am an endurance
0: athlete, okay? That is really cool. Excellent answer. Next question. What is your idea of perfect happiness? So this one's one's hard. I mean, I'd like to
2: say world peace because that would, make me into a much better person than I am. But actually, so there are two strands to this happiness, okay? So if my kids were happy and fulfilled, um, gosh, I would be so happy because I wouldn't have to worry about them. So that would be amazing. But assuming that, you know, there was world peace and my kids were happy, it would be a book, a
0: glass of something, a hammock, and a beach. Very good. What advice would you give to anyone who wants to express their creativity?
2: I'd say borrow from the Stoics. Memento mori. (laughs) We're going to die. You're going to die soon. For goodness sake, don't put it off. Just do it. Just do it. Just sit down. Just do it. You know, don't mind that, you know, what people are going to say about you and... You know, what you're going to say about yourself. Just do it. Today.
0: Now. And then in one word, how would you like to be remembered as a writer? Inspiring. I like that word. I like that word very much. We have a final question, which is, what would you like your second novel to look like, to be like? I'd like it to be a surprise. Returning to the theme of surprise. Well, thank you so much, Ingrid Persaud. I'm so thrilled you could join me on Chanel's Literary Rendezvous podcast. Until we meet again, this has just been wonderful.
1: Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rendezvous Littéraire Rue Cambon Podcast. To discover more about it, You will find images, links, and references on the Chanel website. À bientôt